Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest this week on Attendance Bias is the host of the Cinema Dave Media YouTube channel, Dave Berland. When Dave and I got in touch, two things stood out to me that immediately made me want to speak with him about fish. First of all, he is a huge fan of The Who, and as you've all heard me mention several times on this podcast, I am too, so we have a lot of shared musical DNA. Second, he is a huge movie buff, and although I wouldn't go so far as to call myself an expert, I will say that after fish and music in general, movies are my next biggest passion, so this seemed like a really natural fit. For today's episode, Dave picked July 30th, 2017, better known as the Jimmy's Night of the Baker's Dozen. In an earlier episode with author Jason Gershany, Jason and I went over Glaze Night, the final night of the run. But Jimmy's Night just seems to hit different. It was the same summer, same tour, same run, etc. But tonally, it was completely different than Glaze Night. And you'll hear Dave and I spend a lot of time talking about the details, the appeal, and the tone of the Baker's Dozen as a whole. So let's join Dave to hear about his Criterion Collection, Fish's version of Drowned, and the Baker's Dozen setlist predictions as we discuss July 30th, 2017, at Madison Square Garden, Jimmy's Night. Let's meet today's guest. Dave, welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you? I'm really good, Brian. It's great to be on today. I've been looking forward to this all week. Me too. And the more I've listened to today's show that you've chosen to speak about, that would be July 30th, 2017, at the Baker's Dozen, Jimmy's Night. The more I listen to it, the deeper it gets. But I rarely come back to this one, but I'm glad that you picked it because it kind of forced me to. So, But we'll get into that a little bit later. A little bit about you. You grew up in Massachusetts. You currently live in New York. And before we get into music, let's talk a little bit about movies. You have a YouTube channel called Cinema Dave Media. Yeah. Tell us about it. So I've loved movies all my life. And uh, this is a, a channel where I just talk about uh, my movie collection. And I have I have a big criterion collection. So these are kind of special international movies in many cases. And so that's kind of how it all started. And I really enjoy it. I watch a lot of movies, too. So other than listening to fish, that's what I do. <laughs> Sounds like my whole life, basically. I think you just described <laughs> everything since high school. That's that right. I've gone through. What uh, if if someone was going to visit your YouTube channel, what's one or two episodes that you're particularly proud of and what movies are they about? Right. So um, one of the things is there's a big Criterion Collection uh, sale going on right now. And so uh, I think at Barnes and Noble, it's 50 percent off until August the 1st. So there's a lot of discussion about this particular sale. And so I've, I have a uh, I have a video, a recent video from the past couple of days where I actually take a trip to Barnes and Noble near my area here in New York and pick up some titles there. And so I, I, I always get excited around this time of year because you can get some great deals. So that's probably one I would point uh, people to. If you, if you go to the channel, that would be great. And have you ever done an episode about M the Fritz Lang film? M I haven't, but, but that's another great film. You know, that's the funny thing about film too, is that you can watch a ton of films and you feel like you never are able to see them all, which I know I never will be, but but, uh, you know, it's a great uh, quest to be on for sure. Which is like fish. Yeah. You know, I, I think I don't think it's an accident that we are into those two things. And it's this idea that there's so much out there. Like you just said, it's an impossible quest to fulfill, but that doesn't stop us from trying. That's right. That's right. So everyone at home, check out Cinema Dave Media on YouTube. I'm really excited because I'm a big 
Well, I just said I wasn't a big film buff, but I like to think that I am. <laughs> I call, I'll, tell, I'll call myself that. But I like being introduced to new movies that there's so much greatness out there that I have passed me by. So another part of your interests that you meant in other, mentioned, other than film, let's talk a little bit about Fish. So how did Fish first enter your life? It, you know, I have to say, we were talking a little bit before we started about some, you know, regrets. I, I grew up in Western Massachusetts and I, I went to school in Keene, New Hampshire. And I know Fish played there because I've listened to some of those shows. And of course, they started off in Vermont, which, you know, like I said, I was literally very close to where they were starting off. But I would have to say I really became a super fan uh, in 2010. So I'm kind of late to the party a little bit. Not in the 1.0 era, you know, certainly, but I've listened to a lot of those shows. But I was listening to, I started to couch tour. I I had collected some of the CDs and some of the DVDs and, and I had started to couch tour. And the New Year's Eve show 2010 was when I really became a super fan. And I really became obsessed with the shows. And I think I even, when we were talking before, there's a certain version of Ghost in that show that I, that I, was, I, I was blown away by it. And so that's that's kind of how it all started for me. And I've really been a pretty obsessed you know, fan ever since. Yeah, that famous Holy Ghost, right? It's yeah. come to be known as, that was my first New Year's show. I've been seeing oh, really? Fish since 97 and I was never able to get tickets for the New Year's show. And I live in New York. I live really close to Madison Square Garden. So I had some opportunities, but I totally understand if there's a show that can bring in a new fan, between that ghost that you mentioned, some other musical highlights, and of course the meat stick extravaganza. Oh yeah. That'll yeah. do it. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned in our conversation off mic that you were a casual listener until that New Year's show. What does that look like? Because I, I was all in. I was at a hundred miles per hour right from the get-go. I mean, I like I said, I had a friend introduce me to the band. And so I was listening to a lot of other things. I've always listened to a lot of music in, you know, my life in general. You know, I had a few of the albums. I think I had a live one. I had that one. So I, I really enjoyed the version of uh, Gumbo on that. So I would put that on once in a while and listen to that. Um, I think in the beginning, if I'm being really honest, I was having a little issue with the vocals because, you know, which again is not even an issue for me anymore. It doesn't even bother me anymore. Right. I just am, you know, such a fan of the band, but I think a lot of new listeners, maybe I'm wrong here, but a lot of new listeners, I feel like maybe have issues with the vocals, but I really got into the improvisation element of it. I just love the fact that you can listen to a unique version of a song and hear that version. And I think that's what makes the Baker's Dozen so special too. And I know we'll get into that as well, but certainly my show, when I was re-listening to it, uh, I, you know, it's funny that we call this my show. That was my show. I feel like the one we're going to talk <laughs> Everyone about. Everyone has their show. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the whole point of this podcast. Everyone yeah. has their show. Right. Um, so I you think said, you mentioned that the New Year's 2010 was the first couch touring show that you watched. What was your first in-person show? So my first in-person show was the 29th of uh, July, 2017. Oh, Madison right. Square so Garden. Yeah. Yeah. The night before was my first show, which I, which I absolutely love too. But uh, you know, I think I mentioned uh, also in the notes that I've seen over a hundred, you know, shows just on couch tour. Sometimes just my life, I wasn't able to really get on the road and, you know, go to as many live shows, but I was completely blown away too that night. That was uh, cinnamon night. And my wife and I went and, and we just had a really great time. We, we flew in from the Rochester area where we live and, and we um, went to a Broadway show first and then went right over to Madison square garden to see fish and absolutely blown away. We were so excited. The blaze on and at the beginning of set two is amazing. I mean, there's so many great you know things about that show even, but we were pretty high up for that show. I mean, we were high up sort of in the rafters, uh, I think like parallel to the stage. So we maybe didn't have as, 
good uh, seats as we did for the second night. But but uh, again, just an amazing show too. In addition to the music, what did you feel about the in-person vibe at your first show at Cinnamon Night? Do you remember? I mean, any, anybody that's been to a fish show, I feel like it's such a supportive, positive environment. That's the way I experienced it. Okay. I know maybe not everyone has the same experience, but I just feel like the music to me anyway, is so positive, so energetic, so upbeat that I just had a blast. I really had a great time. So, I mean, that, that's what it was for me. Everybody's very polite too. I mean, I talked to people in line and I mean, this is, you know, the first time, I think this was probably the first time I'd been in, to a Madison square garden show too. I'd seen a lot of shows. I lived in Los Angeles for many years and have, and have been to a ton of shows, but this is the first time I'd been to the big cave as they call it. Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I, th- I thought everyone was really friendly. I really enjoyed it. When was this show played? So let's dig into the Baker's Dozen a little bit and the context of Jimmy's Night that you picked. Jimmy's Night was the eighth night of the Baker's Dozen. It was just past the halfway point. And by now, everyone knew what to expect at this point during the run. It was a big mystery leading up to it. I remember the questions beforehand was, are they going to play repeats? What are the themes going to be each night? And in their very fishy way, they slowly reveal details like jigsaw puzzle pieces until by around this night, we kind of knew what to expect, but at the yeah. same time, didn't. Madison Square Garden would be air-conditioned. Uh, the Penzi was kind of the place to meet up beforehand. There were half-priced concessions at Madison Square Garden beginning at 6.30, which I will implore them to always do. Uh, you got to get in really early to get a donut. Did you get one? I did not get a donut. Did, did you get one? I only got one during the lemon poppy night. I oh, went yeah. to nine out of 13 shows. And the only one I got in early enough for was lemon poppy, which the they lemon. played um, everything in its right place by oh, Radiohead yeah. was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My most uh, familiar memory from that night. But that was the only night I got in early enough. Uh, And then there were both predictable and unpredictable plays on each night's theme, which I want to talk about a little bit here. What were your expectations? Because the band on social media, about 15 minutes after each night ended, they would announce what the next show would be, the theme. And instantaneously, message boards, Twitter, whatever, would light up with ideas and crazy theories, the best kind of conspiracy, conspiracy theories, fish. When you heard Jimmy, what was your impression? I mean, I think we were, you know, we wanted the Harpua, right? I mean, that's, that's the, you know, that's the one, right? And that's the rarity, I feel like. And so I, you know, in the beginning, I was very hopeful uh, about it. Uh, You know, on the second night, I went with uh, some friends of mine, uh, Gary and Stacy, and then my wife, uh, Jesse, again. And so we had all been talking about that, that we were hoping for the Harpua. But, you know, you know, it's such a rarity. I think we've gone many tours without one. Right. I mean, you go years without seeing one. In fact, we haven't heard one since. Right. I, I believe we haven't heard one since since 2017. That's the last time I've heard a Harpua anyway. So I think you're right. And on top of that, like I said, I have I've been seeing them since 1997. So that's plus, you know, minus six months. That's 20 years. And I hadn't seen a Harpua in 100 yeah. plus shows. So this was the first one that I saw. And I agree with you. When I saw Jimmy's like I I have a ticket and thank God I do. Again, I was hopeful for. It. I mean, usually you hear a harpoon like a Dicks or something like that, or you know what I mean. At the end of the, at the end of, uh, like I remember one year that they that they played at the, at at the you know sporting goods arena or whatever. But so that's what I was thinking. I mean, those are the and you know obviously 
Jimi Hendrix. I think I was thinking along those lines for, uh, you know, maybe an Isabella, which I just, it's funny, I was coming back um, home today and I heard an Isabella in the car and I was like, wow, it would have been great if they, and of course they did play that. They were playing the Baker's Dozen, you know, version of that one. Uh, but he played it a few nights later, right? I think that was on the 4th of August, but. Yes, that was, um, that was at the very end of the run. Yeah, yeah. So there was plenty of Jimi Hendrix littered about, but right. an unexpected Jimi Hendrix song today, and we'll get to that encore. Yep. Yep. Some of my outside thoughts were Dr. Jimmy, which is a song, a lesser known song of Quadrophenia, which they covered. And I thought since they're digging so deep into their catalog, why not? You know, they were right. playing everything. So why not? Uh, the Squirming Coil, I thought for the line, Little Jimmy's Off to Camp, which came through, but not in the way we expected. And pretty much any other Jimmy or Fish connections I could think of. So this was, you said, your second night of the Baker's Dozen. Were there just two that you saw? Yeah, I would I would have loved to have seen more. I, I don't know, too. I, I think earlier this year, uh, I, I started hearing some rumors maybe about Maybe 2022, they might do another run like there, you know, at Madison Square Garden. So I don't know if that's I don't know if that's true or not, but I, but that's something I think would be interesting to get another run of. That. I would I would I would definitely want to do a lot of nights. Yeah, no, fingers yeah. crossed, always yeah. for something yeah. like that. Yeah, or maybe even a half dozen, right? We I think we go for a half right? dozen. Yeah, a six pack or something, right? Fingers crossed, fish. I know you're listening. Whoever's in Madison Square Garden, James Dolan, I know you're listening to. Figure it out. Set one. So let's dig into the show. They open with the curtain with, which to me is always a good sign. Always, yeah. always, always. Whenever the curtain appears, especially this early in the show, I'm thrilled. I am obsessed with Paige's organ part in the very beginning. I got obsessed with this song when I got the discs from Big Cypress back in early 2001 when I got them. And I always think it's a good sign. Something I noticed right away is that the tempo was a little bit slower than it normally is, than I expect, which is true in 3.0. But I wonder if it had something to do with how comfortable they were being at a residency. Yeah, I wanted to talk about something there too because you know, keep in mind this is this is my second live show, so yeah. I I I had really good seats. I was on uh, page side, and I uh, and I was pretty close to the uh, you know the floor area, um, and and even pretty close to the stage too. So I you know I spent a lot of time watching the guys come out. I was I mean I'd seen so many times on couch tour and different things, and I love watching couch tour too, just because of the up you know you can get so up close with everything, and I was just absolutely mesmerized when the guys came out. It was so exciting. I can't even tell you, I'm sure you, you know, can relate with some of the early shows, maybe the, that you saw or, or, you know, just another show, but for me, it was really exciting. And for them to open with the curtain with, I thought was, I thought was great as well. And one of the things I always like my curtain with, I have to say, I don't, <laughs> I, I want to make sure that, you know, there's that, you know, the jam part at the end for sure. So and they follow that up with Runaway Jim, which yeah. when I was re-listening to this in preparation for this podcast episode, I thought to myself, why didn't I listen to this over and over again the minute after it happened? Yeah, this right. is an outstanding Runaway Jim. Well, and it almost seems like a second set. You know, there's sometimes yeah. when a first set seems like a second set. This could have been a Runaway Jim from a second set. You know, as I was going through that, I was thinking this is like second set energy. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It was. And to me at this point also, the Bakers doesn't afforded them such comfort and such ease where, you know, they're on a regular tour, they're playing different 
venues every couple nights and they have to get used to the sound in the venue, usually that are very large. And by the time they get it nailed down, they're out, you know, even on a three night run for the garden, for the baker's dozen, they knew exactly how it was going to sound pretty much every night, I think. So when they played this version of runaway Jim, right after the song port, the song part is over it occurred to me that the songs were little more than jam vehicles at this point that I wouldn't call them formalities, but they were certainly springboards in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be like maybe on the second song of a first set. I think I think also the other thing that really intrigued me about the Baker's Dozen too, just in general, since we're talking about that, is you know Trey always talks about having you know not really having a set list and just kind of going out practicing all these songs and and you know going out and just uh, feeling what the crowd is feeling and trying to go off that. And I was thinking to myself, with this particular residency, there must have had to be some planning that went into it, right? Because you know you can't incorporate some of these songs that relate to the donut. <laughs> without having some kind of planning too. But then, as you were saying, since they're so used to the venue and everything's been set up for a few nights, uh, it really gives them a chance to improvise in a different way, maybe than they have, you know, than they're not able to do if they're on the road. Right. And of course they're so used to Madison square. Yeah. They're so used to Madison square garden too. So I thought it was a really good version of runaway Jim. I really enjoyed it a lot. Me too. Me too. Definite highlight after runaway Jim, they played two songs in a row that to me, it was all right time for me to go to the bathroom and get a beer. <laughs> uh, no disrespect to either, but they were on opposite ends of the timeline for Fish. First was Waking Up Dead, Mike's song from Big Boat. And then they played Esther, which is one of the oldest of yeah. all Fish songs. And I feel kind of similarly about both. I wasn't that into Waking Up Dead. I like what Mike is going for. But I don't think he sings it with any authority. I don't think there's a lot of confidence behind the song. And it's weird in a good way. Mike's song are always weird. But not in. he doesn't pull it off with a lot of guidance or a lot of aplomb. Esther, I could go without it. It was the one song on Junta that I always skipped. But I know a lot of people out there do love it. What were you thinking at this point of the set? I mean, I totally agree with you on Waking Up Dead. It's I think it's a good song, but but you know, you know, Mike and I think the band even kind of struggled to pull it off. To me, it's like one of those kind of songs. I don't want to compare it to Sugar Shack or anything, but I feel like it's it's kind of one of those songs that that you know they need to incorporate to try it out, you know, to see how it goes, right? I had this thought today when I was re-listening to the show. Maybe it's just a song like you said, they have to play more and more to to get that confidence. It just seems like they haven't cracked it open yet. I would agree. I would agree with that. Um, and I think there's some songs we've seen over the years that they really do crack open, right? And start to really, 
use as a, you know, as a jam vehicle. Um, Look at Ruby know, Waves, right? Ru- oh yeah, absolutely. Ruby Wave. Isn't today the anniversary too of, uh, of the, yes. uh, I thought it was the, the, oh, is no. it the Deer Creek one or is it yeah. the. Oh, is it? Yes. It's the 14th, right. We're recording 14th. on July 14th. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah and what about Esther? So Esther, I think I've grown to really enjoy more over the years. Uh, I was, again, I was in the beginning of the first set. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at Corotta's lighting rig. I'm looking, you know, I'm just really enjoying the, you know, the environment, the atmosphere, listening to them live, which they really sounded crisp live in that room. I have to say, I mean, it's a, you know, such a big room for sure. But um, I think I've grown to like Esther a little bit more with the, uh, you know, the Beacon Jams and working with Jeff Tansky and the Rescue Squad and everything like that. I really enjoyed those versions, kind of the stripped down versions of Esther, which is a hard song to play. I mean, I'm a sure. guitar player, too. And that's a crazy hard song to play. And so I think I just appreciate I appreciate that. And, um, you know, this is, again, something I think about often, too. I wonder if Trey has a has a prompter in front. I'm pretty sure he does for the lyrics even though sometimes he forgets the lyrics, but um, I think for that one, there's so many lyrics. I mean, come on, it's crazy. After Esther, this is fun because this is in my, in my mind, this is the flip side of waking up dead. They played home, which is another song off big boat. It is not led by Trey. It's pages song. Yeah. And I like it. I like it better than a lot of the other songs that are on that album. I remember that it was the promo clip when the band first announced the release of the album it takes about five minutes for it to really get started. I think I'll, I listen to a lot of Paige's songs and his lyrics, I mean, through the lens of his divorce. I feel like a lot of his songs are about splitting up or taking something for granted, perhaps, or for uh, assuming you have something. And then when you snap to it, it's not there anymore. Getting used to one life and then realizing you have a whole nother life waiting for you. That's my personal lens. It, I could be way off if I sat down and spoke to Paige about it. So a lot of this is like storytelling and personal feelings. A lot of his songs involve. And then after five minutes, musically speaking, they're rocking really hard. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And, and, you know, that's new information to me. I guess I didn't know that Paige was divorced, but uh, you know, you know, interesting. I, you know, any conversation I have about fish or even on Twitter, uh, if I go back and forth, I'm always learning new things, which I think that's another great thing about the band. I feel like anytime you talk about the band, anytime you hear a show or you learn, you know, I'm always hearing new teases and songs and things like that. Even if I listen to the show over and over again, I go, that's a tease of this, you know, but I totally agree. This one is a better, is a better track. You know, Paige obviously is very confident, you know, singing and uh, you know, they really, you know, they jam, right. 
And I had this thought, this is the only way I could think to express it is this sounds like the Baker's dozen to me. There was a, like you mentioned it earlier, you hinted at it at least, that there was a very particular sound in the room over the course of this run that is not duplicated pretty much anywhere else, even at other shows at Madison Square Garden. And also, I think Trey was playing with some new toys, right? I mean, I feel like even even the show you mentioned with everything in its right place, mm-hmm. um, he, he, you know, they he was definitely experimenting there with with a, you know, I saw him even on, you know, on the shows that I couched toward, kind of going over to this new panel, and people started talking about that too. So I think the residency gave them time to experiment with all this, all these, all these new toys, right? Mm-hmm. So we got totally. a different sound. Yeah, we got a different sound, and we got some, you know, it was interesting for them, so it was interesting for the audience too. After home, they needed a cool down and they played Brian and Robert, which I, I love this song. I think it's one of the few songs that the album version supersedes almost any live version. I think it's one of their most beautiful recordings. I, I would agree. I love it. And one thing that I noticed, I remember noticing this in real time, that instead of Fishman's cymbal work that provides the rhythm or the drum beat, so to speak, for this one, it was kind of more of a straightforward 4-4 four, four Jackson Brown sort of solo. Did you notice that? Was it was it only me? I I mean, I mean, it sounds I'm I'm you know, I like I said, I recently re-listened to the show too, but I didn't really notice that. But that's a good that's a good catch though for sure. Um, if you get the time, listen back to the stere- the stereo, listen to me, listen to the album version, and then listen to this version again i'm a drummer and i and brian and robert's one of my favorite songs so at first i wasn't sure if i liked it but like you the more i listen to it the more i enjoy it i love it and i've heard trey play it uh solo um acoustic i've seen trey uh twice now uh solo acoustic not with the rescue squad or anything like that but uh yeah i just love that song it's such a poignant um you know, song. I, 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 you know, I love the lyrics. I absolutely love the lyrics. I do too. And when they nail those background vocals, there's nothing like it. Yeah. Next up was Nellie Kane, which I thought was typical, good fish, bluegrass, good uh, transition from the slowdown song into the next big time capital letters, Forbins into Mockingbird, which is another huge rarity. We mentioned, we talked a little bit about Harpua before we'll do it again, but this is right on par with it. Were you as well versed in the band's mythology and the rarity aspect of like that kind of side of things by the time you got to this show? Absolutely. I was totally in the game hinge by the time I got to the show. And I was like, it was great to hear these kind of songs live. I mean, so I really enjoyed that whole, you know, sequence up until the end of the set too. And I, and I thought it was great to hear, you know, you've got Curtin with, and, the, and then you've got a Mockingbird and a, a Colonel Forbins in the same show. I mean, you know, you just can't go wrong, right? I mean, what a yeah. show already. And some people would add Esther onto that. Esther you too. Know, yeah, exactly. Right. Let yeah. alone in the same set. Right. In the same set. I mean, I think, you know, as fish fans, I think we're hoping for a, a I'm, I'm at some point, I should say, this is kind of a, this is kind of a side note, but I'm hoping for some kind of fish musical at some point in the career here, because I feel like Gamehenge would be perfect for a fish musical <laughs> or, 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 or at least a show that's all Gamehenge at some point. Right. Yeah. It I would, know we've seen before, but not in recent years. Right. Yeah. No, we've uh, with other guests, I've talked about Gamehenge quite a bit, most recently with uh, Jeff Goldberg, who is associated with fish.net and he picked yeah. a show July 8th, 94, which I think was their last performance of Gamehenge right. to date. I don't know how I would feel about a Game Henge musical. But it would need a lot of blanks filled in for right. it to work. But yeah, the music is just so delightful. 
Yep, I agree. Okay. So in Forbin's Mockingbird, there's not really a, a narration. I mean, there is a mini narration where Trey, and this is where the squirming coil comes in for little Jimmy's off to camp, right. which I doesn't make any sense when you sit down and listen to it. But man, is it fun, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's super fun. Mockingbird is a little off. Can't blame him, though. Oh, wait, before we finish off Mockingbird, it blew my mind that in the middle of that little Colonel Forbin's narration that he quoted uh, Glass Onion by the Beatles. The walrus was Paul. He said the walrus was Jimmy. Did you catch oh, that? Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And and he, and he they played I Am the Walrus the night before, too. The words of the Helping Friendly book are powerful, but you don't need many of them. For lo, it is written. Lo, Jimmy holds the Tannis root. The forest tastes the nectar shoot. The sun tips off the monarch suit from sequin stash to shiny boot. And here's another clue for you all. The monarch was Wilson. That was the, that was that was a closing of uh, set one on the 29th. I must have. That's it. That's the connection. Yeah. Because yeah. when I've listened that night, I it didn't make any sense to me. And even if I've listened back, I know they've covered the White Album. Right. But I thought, all right, I guess they're kind of doing a sideways nod to that. But right. you're right. You yeah. always learn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and to close the set, they started David Bowie. Right. which I haven't loved so much in 3.0 compared to previous versions, but this one, this one nailed it. It was perfect for the spot. Yeah. I thought it was a great version of it. And, and again, so amazing to see live. I've heard so many versions of the song, but uh, you know, it really gave the guys a chance to improvise and uh, you know, again, keep in mind, you know, I'm still, I'm still sort of uh, glowing from seeing, you know, a set one that was so amazing. So really, really good. I mean, I, like I said, you know, complete excitement, you know, you know, wishing I had, uh, you know, gotten tickets for more nights, I have to say. (laughs) at that point. So yeah, you came in from Rochester. Was this part of a vacation or was it just a special thing that you and your wife said, let's hit these two shows and then go back home? It's really funny because I did the, I did the lottery for the 730 show, the one we're talking about. And then my wife and I were going to go see a Broadway play when we went in and we said, let's just look for other, you know, cause we can't be in town and no fish is playing and not go to the show. So we had tickets to a Broadway show. And then we said, let's look on StubHub and see if we can get tickets. And that's how we got the tickets to the 29th. And we're like, yeah. Oh, this is great. And we, and again, we were going from the, from the cab to the Broadway show to the, to, you know, Madison square garden. So by the end of the night on the 29th, we were really exhausted. I bet. And if you were on Broadway, it was just 10 blocks away. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we ran, I mean, we just got a, you know, like a bottle of water at one of the stands on the corner. And then we went into the show. Set two. All right. Breaking into set two. This is one of my favorite covers that they play because I'm a huge fan of the who I know you mentioned in your notes that you are as well. Absolutely. They open with drowned and man, 
opening the second set with it is it drives me crazy in the best way possible. Insane. Insane. I mean, we, I mean, like I said, my friend Gary was with me and he and I both saw the who, in fact, we saw the who at the Hollywood bowl. Oh, wow. And it, and it was, it was the show that was canceled and uh, because um, Entwistle had passed away. And so oh. they got Pino Palladino to stand in. And so it was the first show back for them, but they played a rock and show that night. But anyway, we were really excited I mean, I just looked at my friend Gary and said, this is, this is heaven sent. I mean, this is amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. I felt the same way in, I think it was 1999 was the first time I saw drown, fish play drowned. At least they opened it at in Hartford. I think the date is December 12th, 99. And they opened the second set and it's like a 30 minute long ambient. Now I won't even say roller coaster because there's not crazy peaks. It's just kind of in the atmosphere. Yeah. And I went nuts. I went nuts. I probably felt the same exact way you did yeah. here. And there's some parts of this Drowned, this version of Drowned, especially at around three minutes that early in, that you can prove it. That Paige is just owning this and really yeah. hammering that keyboard. I mean, you know, it pays to play the song over and over again for so many years. I mean, they really nailed it. I, I was so impressed. And again, you know, this is the part, I don't know where you were, but I was pretty, I was really mesmerized by the lighting rig. I have to say, I was just watching, I was watching the, uh, you know, Corota sort of in the back and, and, and also the rig that was amazing for Madison Square Garden too. So I'm just watching that part too, at the beginning of set two, I'm watching that rig move around. I don't know if it's a special one, if he's always had that one. I don't know, but I, I felt like I was up close to it. I don't know if that was the first time he used it. Maybe that summer 2017 tour, right? You know, they had like three or four shows before. Before, yeah. yeah. That might have been their first. But I want to stick on this drowned for a little bit. Sure. Uh, yeah. What it did for me at the time, and again, listening to it this week, is... The Baker's Dozen became its own event in itself. And the fact that we realized by this point, eight shows in, that they weren't going to repeat any songs, it made us realize that, okay, this is the Baker's Dozen Drowned. This is the Baker's Dozen Colonel Forbins. Yeah. You know, yeah. everything was had that um, precursor to it. It was the only one we were going to hear in 13 shows, which is pretty rare for a tour. And this, so this Baker's Dozen Drowned was really a high point of the whole run, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. I know we talked about it earlier, but sort of the, the you know, set list Jenga, if you will, uh, you know, just kind <laughs> of moving the pieces around and everything like that. Like I said, there had to be more planning going into this to say, this is our only version of this. And so we're, you know, they have an opportunity to, to you know, really take it to a new level. 
it's a special show for me. I mean, I, I, I know I said that at the beginning, but uh, it's a really special show for me. And when, you know, my wife and I listen to it, we have so many memories. We feel like we're there, you know, still. And this is, like I said, the beginning of the special set. Why did you pick this show to come on and speak about as opposed to the cinnamon night? You know what? I had really good seats and I love Harpua. So, <laughs> so. Well, it's coming I mean, out I, pretty soon. Yeah, I never, yeah, I know, I know we'll get to it. I mean, it's not like we spoiled anything, but I'm saying that <laughs> I, I mean, seeing the Harpua was so special, but I know we'll get to it. So. Yeah, of course. And, you know, we don't want to rush it at, during, during Drowned. I just want to stick on it because I'm so in love with it that there's really ethereal, what I like to call planetarium fish in at around 14 minutes. Cause I just picture myself in one of those cushy, comfortable seats looking up at yeah. Hayden's planetarium <laughs> right. uh, in 16 minutes. It gets a, quite a bit darker. It reminds me of their 2.0 tone a little bit. Fisher's using their entire history to still invent new music on the spot. It's like they have access to a gigantic control panel where each button and flip switch is a different part of their catalog style and tricks over the last, what was it at the time? Maybe 30 something years. Yeah. And, you know, this is what's made me so obsessed with the band, I think, uh, you know, for the last 11 years, because, uh, just looking at the analytics and just analyzing everything, all these different versions. And then you realize that something like this is just such a special version 
because of the room that they're in, because of the, you know, the toys that they have to play with. And it's so funny that you mentioned also this aquarium uh, uh, idea, because I think the next song is a song I heard the ocean sing. I think that's the next one, right? Yes. And so, so I, it it just kind of clicked with me because, uh, and not to move off the drowned at all, but go for it. um, But I feel like that song for me and, and, you know, they put that particular uh, version on, you know, their YouTube channel too. So I've watched that video over and over again. That to me really stuck out in the second set. As much as I love Drown, I, I, I felt like I was in a different place during that version of a song I heard the ocean sing. And it's not even a song that I particularly like that much. I can't really even say it's a favorite, but I feel like the jamming in that one, I think it's an over 20 minute version of it. I, I could be wrong there, but um, that one blew me away. Totally blew me away. So by the time they got into that, I, I looked around at my friends too. And I'm like, is this, you know, you have like one of those lawn boy moments, right? Is this yeah. still lawn boy? I, I, I was thinking that like, what song is this? Are we even in the second set? You know, like I, <laughs> I was completely gone at that point, just totally uh, enjoying the show. I yeah. have a very similar outlook on the song. I heard the ocean sing as you do. I remember at the time, I thought that this was the best version I heard. I thought at the time live in person, I mean, and my previous one, was Brooklyn 2004 and the vibe there was not so hot. It was, first of all, it was raining like crazy, but second, they had just announced a little less than a month prior that they're breaking up. And this is, this is the last tour. And so a lot of those songs that came out around that time that are on the undermined album, I was not that interested in. I didn't want to get attached to them because as far as I knew, I would never hear them played live again. So, you know, let's fast forward through this song. I heard the ocean sing and get to the good stuff. Like they played the curtain, you know, stuff like that. But looking back, it's a good version, but I still think this one is the best I've heard. Is is that the, is that the, the 2004, was that captured on the live in Brooklyn? Is that the one that's on live? Because I've watched that one too. And I, I would agree with you. It was not as good as this one. Yeah, I thought this one, the sound was so much more balanced. We've talked about the sound a lot, but it's impossible not to. And also the thing I remember about it, and you'll see this in the video if you watch it on YouTube, punching of those lights, the red lights in the back, you know how they have the, they had like the, uh, I don't know if it's like a, like a police light in the back or something like that. I don't know what they call it, but, uh, but there's red lights in the back that kind of punch the drums at that, at that particular point in the song. And I remember that specifically about, about, about the lighting during that song. Uh, really, really amazing to see live. It's funny that you keep making reference to the lighting. I remember almost nothing about the lights from anything (laughs) in this whole run. The only thing I remember is the last night of the whole thing when they were putting the spotlight on the banner that they raised. That they raised. Otherwise, it was just a big glump. You know, it's funny if I can mention one other thing here too. Really funny that you were talking about 2004 and kind of when the band was breaking up and then when they got back together. I, I've, I've had this thing happen to me where I really get into a band and then they break up. So keep in mind when I first started listening to fish was around the time when they got back together again, which is, which, which made it very special for me because during the time that they were not together and things were happening, I was listening more to their music, maybe not as regularly as, you know, couch touring every, every week, but, uh, to have a band get back together (laughs) was super exciting for me. I also have a habit of getting into bands and artists before they break before up. They break up. Unfortunately, before they die, I was I got right. deep into Warren Zevon yep. right before he left this earth. Uh, big Star was another big power pop band that I loved. And they, uh, well, again, their lead singer died as well. So right. 
it's it's pretty much the music equivalent of getting the jersey of your favorite baseball player minutes before he's traded. Right, right, exactly. To end a song I heard the ocean sing, like you mentioned, you felt like you were in a completely other place. They keep pushing it farther and farther out into kind of new territory to explore, like a European explorer. By around 14 minutes, Fishman is playing this weird like marching band drum beat. I don't know if you know the part I'm talking about. And the rest of the band is like early Pink Floyd territory. It's really this (laughs) confluence and mixture and combination of weird different styles that still somehow, somehow holds together. Yeah. Finally, the big time, they break out Harpua. Yeah. I'll save my piece. You're, this is the reason you picked it. Where? What was happening? To you? I mean, I mean, oh man. I mean, I heard the I heard the opening chords of that. I knew exactly what it was. Of course, we were hoping for it, right? So it's not like it was a you know that much of a mystery. But I was like, oh my. I, I was like, am I really here to see this? Because <laughs> I. I knew how much of a rarity it was. I love when the guys talk. I mean, I have to say, I like when they kind of, you know, take a break and are, you know, and are funny and are kind of goofing around. You know, I have to say, I like a lot of, you know, I like shows with some shenanigans. Okay. Me too. So, you know, if if it's just kind of a straight show and there's some great jamming, that's great. But I love when they just laugh and have a good time and, and are, you know, kind of joking with each other or Fishman does something silly or whatever. And so I thought, wow, this is going to be great. And uh, you know, and they had the chairs and the newspapers and everything like that. I, t- I was, you know, I was taking pictures and really just amazed with the whole thing. And I knew the crowd was going to, I mean, cause we were, you know, we were primed for it already after those first two songs, we were like, Oh man, this is going to be great. And so uh, you know, just when they're sitting down and I, you know, I try to think, I'm also thinking when I'm in the shows, when I listen to them back about, you know, how did they plan this? Did they rehearse this? Is this happening? I mean, I think I was thinking about it too, when they did the, uh, the New Year's Eve show when Trey got stuck on the platform, you know, I was thinking, you know, cause a lot of people are saying, is this a gag? You know, we know that it wasn't a gag, but you know, I'm often wondering, you know, are they really reading those newspapers? Is this a script? Are they making it up as they go along? You know, that kind of thing. So I was thinking that as they started reading through it, obviously the universe is a donut. I still believe that, but. Oh yeah. You signed on to, I don't even understand I signed, it. I signed on to it. Whatever it's, they say, I'm with it. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll, I'll sign on to that then. Yeah. But I know that the, the script did come from a New York times article that was about metaphysics. And it was someone arguing that due to some sort, again, I don't understand it. So any metaphysicians out there, any uh, scientists out there, you could yell at me all you want. Cause I, I deserve it, but it's something like due to certain observations that you could make and theories about 
about space and the way that the universe is organized, that it's kind of this, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Cylindrical. Uh, cylindrical. Yeah. Yeah. Cylindrical shape that kind of expands and contracts. So the closest comparison would be that it's a donut. So a donut, yeah. I think what they did was they, like you mentioned, they all had the newspapers opened. I think that copies of those articles were cut out, copied, pasted with different band members highlighted, depending on when it was their turn to speak. When they're going. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And like fish, like any joke with fish, they got to do it well past the punchline hits. Yeah. You know, they're already like six minutes in before it says more like a donut. Large scale variations form a line across the sky. Wait. So if the universe is finite in one dimension, Meaning it's like a cylinder, or yep, or like a donut. Wow, fish, that's right. It's definitely a donut. There's a limit to the size of clumps that can fit in that direction, and they couldn't be bigger than the universe in that direction, so it has to be a donut. A guitar string, a guitar string can only play a note solo, depending on its length. So, the biggest blobs would have to squish out in a plane in other directions. The way home around the donut would... It's like they're already six minutes into the keg. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just love the interplay. I mean, that was such, it was so entertaining. It was just amazing to see that. And then again... As I said, you know, you have to realize as a fish fan how special it is to see a rarity like that because some people go 10 years more longer than that, maybe even without even seeing, yeah. a, you know, a song like depending on the tickets that you get or where you see the band, et cetera. So I, I, it's, you know, still, you know, my top show, I have to say. For good reason. Yeah. And after Harpua finishes, they go right into 2001. And at this point, it's a murderer's row of a set list. You can't yeah. go wrong. Yeah. And even if you don't like all the songs, like I mentioned, a song I heard the ocean sing isn't, you know, if I had to make a list of 10 dream songs in a set list, it probably wouldn't be included, but the way they played would be. Yeah. So can, considering that it's an outstanding set going into 2001, which is an instant dance party. There was a media transition from Harpua into this. I remember the whole mood of the place just switched instantly from being goofy, laughing. Can you believe they're doing this? What is happening? This is funny to, all right, let's get down. And, and 2001 also is one of my favorites, you know, just listening to, you know, the listening I was doing before I became an obsessed, you know, fan. Uh, so I, it, it was, you know, great to hear that live as well. Right. And they really, you know, it's funny because I was listening to an, an I, I can't remember the year, but I was listening to another version of 2001 where Trey started playing, you know, the main, you know, the main theme very early on. And I feel like in this one, maybe this is true for three Oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like they really tease that opening. They really tease that quite a bit. You, you really think he's going to go into it and then they just kind of go back down again and, they, and he doesn't do it. But there are, are other versions where he goes right into the theme right away and plays yeah. it over and over again. When it was, when it was very early, when it debuted, I think it was in 1993, it was like a three and a half minute performance that they would just start the drum beat, go right into the chorus, I think do two or three rounds, and then they were moving on to the next song. And then around 97-ish, I think they started really expanding and seeing the potential of it to jam on it and just kind of vamp 
and go yeah. wherever they want. I agree with you on this one. And this goes all the way back to our discussion about the curtain, that their tempo was a little bit slower and they were a little bit more comfortable. They could spread their wings. And this 2001 really benefits. I love that Paige uses his synthesizer during this. He's gotten a lot more comfortable with it. And I think yeah. it benefits the whole thing. Perfect palate cleanser. Absolutely. Harpua. Absolutely. And to close the whole set, there's kind of a back-to-back, two closers, I would argue, Golgi Apparatus, which is, I think, standard great. And then this new, and I don't think it's been played since, I could be wrong on that, but a new acapella tune in the good old summertime. Yeah, that was fun too. Uh, one thing I'll say about uh, Golgi Apparatus that I, I I love that song. So for me, seeing it, uh, I just was singing at the top of my lungs, the chorus on that one. And I remember hugging my friend Gary, which I don't even know why I did it, but I was so excited to see that song that I turned around, I gave him a hug. I'm like, I can't believe I'm seeing this live, you know? So I know, you, I knew you said it was kind of a standard version for me. I was super excited to, and I, and I remember losing my voice because I sang so loud, the chorus on that one. That's fabulous. Yeah. It's, it's a classic. It's everyone's yeah. favorite at some point. Yeah. They played it at my first show and I felt the same exact way that you did. It's, I can't believe I'm hearing it. I know this one yeah. is what I remember. <laughs> I, I remember yeah. saying, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was standard, but standard great because it's fish. Yep. In the good old summertime, I didn't realize until I just listened to it again the last time before we started recording. This is a very demanding song, especially a fishman. Yep. I can't imagine how exhausted he is after two sets of music, and now he's got to really stretch himself. And he's got to sing. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love the acapella, right? I mean, I think yeah. the acapella versions are so special to see. So. I mean, what a way to close out the night. I mean, I was happy at the end of set one, I have to say. So this was everything, everything after set one was extra for me. I, 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 I was just like, you know, <laughs> this is great. So. And the encore lived up to the theme of the night. They could have played any Jimi Hendrix song, like you mentioned earlier, you know, yeah. they play fire. That's part of their rotation. They could have played any other Jimi Hendrix song, but leave it to fish to debut a new Fish, uh, I'm sorry, a new Jimi Hendrix song after they've already covered like six of them already. Yeah. What were your thoughts on their version of The Wind Cries Mary? I thought it was I thought it was really good. And I don't think they've played it since, have they? I could be wrong. No, we may have to fact check that. Yeah, the, yeah, it's the only time it's the debut. So again, you're getting something special in the encore that I thought was, you know, amazing. I had seen uh, Cinnamon Girl the night before too. Mm -hmm. So, and I know uh, maybe they had played that before too, but but I think they I played it, it once. Just, it might have been in the summer of '98, but I'll have to check that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was great. To, it was great to hear that, and we were sort of expecting that it might be Cinnamon Girl the night before too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I loved it too. And with the Wind Cries Mary, it's a lot more sedate than a lot of other Jimi Hendrix songs as a ballad. And this is the sort of song that I feel a lot of friends, when they're forming a band in high school, might learn to play yeah. in their basement. And it's a lot tougher to play than you might think. Maybe yeah. not learning the chords or the drum parts, but learning how to play it. Nailing the tone of this song is not easy. Yeah. And Fish pulled it off. Yeah, really, really special at the end of the night. Absolutely. So overall, Dave, what is your impression of Jimmy's Night? I think we kind of know, but if you had to sum it up. Absolutely amazing. And I... Just one one thought I had too is I remember walking out with the crowd at the end yeah. and how excited everyone was. And I got the same kind of friendly vibe that I got going in. And so I think for me, Fish is such a special band. I mean, I have to say I, there was a time that I 
I, I think I'm still even thinking about this where I was ready to get rid of all the other CDs I have and just listen to fish <laughs> for the rest of my life. I, I don't know if that's realistic and I am listening to other music, you know, now, but, uh, but I just feel that they're so special. They're so um, referential to other things. I mean, you know, people have called them, you know, the best cover band in the world too. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, they, you know, so uh, you know, if I hear a version of a song like drowned or the wind cries, Mary, I would, I would want to hear their version of it. Right. I look forward to Halloween all the time because of I want to hear what they're going to play. So this was a really special time for me. It was special for my wife and I uh, and, you know, my friends and, and, uh, it's really funny because this summer we're uh, after the pandemic and everything. I mean, I know things are still going on, but we randomly decided to get together in a couple of weeks and we're getting together on the, on the anniversary of the show. We didn't even realize we were doing that the same, you know, the same four people. So we talk about the show often we have, you know, we got magnets for the show that are on our fridge. We, I mean, my wife and I talk about fish every single day and I, and you know, so secrets I, you know, to this, a happy marriage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, so anyway, this was a really special show for me with a, a special group of people, not only my friends, but also the entire audience. And before we cut out of here, Dave, can you give us one more reminder about your YouTube channel and how people can find it? So I have a channel on YouTube called Cinema Dave Media, where I talk about movies, um, international films, uh, you know, all all types of films. Uh, I have a, I have a collection of uh, uh, Criterion Blu-rays. I think that's probably my, my, um, what I cherish the most. Um, so I absolutely love along with, along with my love of fish, I love also uh, films. So if you want to hear about new films or see haul videos, that's where I do that on YouTube. So. All right, Dave Berlin, thank you again so much for joining us today on attendance bias. Thanks so much to you, Brian. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking with you. And that's it for today's episode, my interview with Dave Berland about Jimmy's Night. As you all know, at the end of every episode, we have to do an attendance bias fact check because we threw a lot of guesses out there today. And man, this fact check took me quite a while to put together. But just the same, I'm quite proud of it. So please enjoy today's attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. First, Dave mentioned that he grew up near Keene, New Hampshire. He brought this up because he regrets not getting into Fish sooner because they used to play there. The main venue that Fish played in Keene was the Colonial Theater, which is still there and has a capacity of 1,304 seats. According to Fish.net, the band played there seven times between the May of 1990 and March of 1992. When discussing the anticipation of hearing Harpua during Jimmy's Night, Dave thought that this version of Harpua was the last one played to date, and he's right about that. This interview was recorded in mid-July 2021, so by the time it airs, Fish will be well into their 2021 summer tour, fingers crossed. So this, of course, may change. But as of today, July 30th, 2017 was the last time the band played Harpua. Also during the Harpua discussion, Dave mentioned that the band once played the song at Dick's. He's referring to September 6, 2015, when the band played Harpua during the outstanding Thank You Encore. Harpua was the H of the Thank You acronym. During our discussion about Waking Up Dead, our conversation drifted over to Ruby Waves. Dave mistakenly said that the date of our recording, June 14th, 2021, was the anniversary of the Deer Creek version of Ruby Waves that was famously jammed out. He is referring to the performance of Ruby Waves from July 14th, 2019 at Alpine Valley, not Deer Creek. 
During our chat about a song I heard the ocean sing, Dave guessed that it's a 20-minute version of the song at Jimmy's Night. He's close, but off by just a little bit. According to Fish.in, this version is 18 minutes and one second. Again, in our discussion about Harpua, I said that the script for the song's narration was from a New York Times article. The article is titled, quote, Universe as Donut, New Data, New Debate. It was written by Dennis Overby, and it was published in the New York Times on March 11, 2003. And quickly, during our discussion of 2001, Dave said that earlier versions of the song dive into the chorus very quickly. When he asked me about that, I mentioned that 2001 debuted in 1993, and the earliest versions were about three minutes long. For the record, the first time Fish played 2001 was on July 16, 1993, at the Mann Music Center in Philadelphia. That debut was four minutes and three seconds. And finally, a correction. I said that the band had played Cinnamon Girl once before Cinnamon Night, possibly in the summer of 1998, but I was wrong, on both counts. They played it twice before, both times in 1997. Cinnamon Girl debuted on March 18, 1997 at the Flynn Theater in Burlington, Vermont, and they played it a second time on July 31, 1997 at the Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I have to thank Dave Berlin for joining me today, Fish.net for really helping out with today's extensive fact check, and Fish.in, Fishin', for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also find Attendance Bias on social media, specifically Instagram and Twitter. If you reach out, I'll send you a free sticker. And of course, thank you so much again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.